Well, as our brother Joey mentioned really at the beginning of the service tomorrow, I believe marks the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous and in some circles infamous actions of nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Uh, Luther's actions set off a, a chain of events which eventually led to the Protestant Reformation, as we know. Uh, recovered the authority of the scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what took place in the Reformation. And while these two issues are really actually intimately related, I want us to focus in on the latter issue this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther began to proclaim that justification comes by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, he was not proclaiming some new doctrine. Uh, He was proclaiming the truth that's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In fact, that text played a pivotal role in Luther's understanding and his own life. Uh, while he was working on his uh, uh, pre- uh, his works in Latin, the preface to his works in Latin, he wrote about his uh, engagement and experience with this particular text, the text that we're looking at this morning. And I, I wonder, have you ever come across a biblical text uh, that strikes you, that kind of grates on you, that you don't really like it at first, but in time, the more that you're leaning into it and trying to understand it, you actually come to love it. Well, that was Martin Luther's experience with this text. Uh, writing, he said things like, um, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he, that God, was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. He goes on to talk about how he raged against God in his heart. He had a troubled conscience, and he kept beating at Paul, trying to understand what he was saying in this particular text. And he talks about how eventually, by God's mercy, he understood the context of the words, in the righteousness of God, it's revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. He says that he began to understand the righteousness of God, is is given as a gift to us, by God's grace. And, And then he says that here I felt that I was altogether born again, and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That place, he said, in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Well, I pray that this text will be to you today a gate to paradise, that you walk through it. If you haven't walked through it by faith in Jesus Christ today, I pray that this morning that we, well, we appreciate Martin Luther. We don't want to study him We want to study the truth of God's word that he rightly understood that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I do not think it's an overstatement to suggest that rightly understanding and warmly embracing with faith the truth that's revealed in this text would make the difference between heaven and hell. May God be gracious to us as we study these words together this morning. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles if you haven't done so already. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I think it's on page 939 of the Bibles provided if they're uh, there for you. Go ahead and take them out, open them up. If, if I had to uh, summarize what Paul is chiefly concerned about in the letter to the Romans, I think that I would say that Paul is chiefly concerned about the gospel. Uh, but is that what Paul is actually concerned about in, in our text, in Romans 1, 16 and 17? Well, in the first 15 verses of the letter, so you can kind of scan them, uh, Paul has shared with the Romans his call to be an apostle and how his call is closely linked to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see in verse 1, uh, he's addressed his letter to all the believers in Rome, that's those who've received the gospel, and he's greeted them with grace and peace, the blessings of the gospel. You see that in verse 7. Paul also gave thanks to God for his brothers and sisters in Christ, 
who were in Rome. And he expressed his desire to come and minister the gospel among them. That's really verses 8 to 15. Now, look at verse 15. Do you see verse 15 there? Paul writes, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, it's important for us to see Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel in Romans 1.15, because it's really going to be the third point, but also because in verses uh, 16 and 17, Paul enumerates the reasons that he's so eager to preach the gospel. First, Paul is eager to preach the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And secondly, Paul is eager to preach the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Read Romans 1, 16 and 17 now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we're going to step through these verses kind of piece by piece, but I trust that you see the headlines clearly. Paul offers two reasons for why he is eager to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to study, um, we're going to see that he's eager to preach the gospel. He's not ashamed of this, the gospel. And we're going to look at this under uh, three headings. We're going to look at Paul's two points. And then we're going to self-reflect, uh, reflect on them and what Paul has said. If you're taking notes this morning, so here are the, the three points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. The gospel, one, is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And two, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And then the third point is really going to be a question. We're going to self-reflect on are we eager to share that gospel or are we ashamed? Let's begin by looking at our first point, Paul's assertion that the gospel is the power of God. As we do, take a look at verse 16 again. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If there is one thing that the scriptures make clear from the very beginning, it's that God is powerful, right? He, he powerfully creates the world by speaking the world into existence. Uh, he creates everything from nothing by his mere word, his powerful word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Simply by God's speaking, the universe springs into existence. But here, Paul is not speaking about God's general power displayed in creation. He is speaking more precisely. He's speaking particularly about God's power to save, displayed and mediated through the gospel. If we're to think about how God powerfully uses the gospel, then we need to think about what the gospel exactly is. The gospel is quite simply the good news about Jesus Christ. It is a message of good news in a world that's filled with so much bad news. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul summarizes the gospel in this way. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation, is the message that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the message. This is the good news that we're going to continue to unpack here in this text. 
How could this message about Jesus be so powerful? Look over at the very beginning of the letter. Look at, look at verses one to four. You see there what Paul writes? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in reading this, it should really come as no surprise to us. The gospel is powerful because the person who is at the very center of the gospel has been declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel is God's most powerful message about the most powerful person the world has ever seen. When God exercises his power, he always has a goal and he always accomplishes his goal. What does God use his powerful gospel for? Do you see it in our text, verse 16? He uses it for salvation. Salvation in the scriptures usually carries with it actually negative connotations. Right? Think about it. In other words, uh, sal- salvation really comes to us in the context of danger. Uh, a rescue is required. A deliverance is desired. Perhaps the clearest Old Testament example of God's salvation is powerful deliverance is found in the Exodus. God's people, as you may recall, were enslaved in Egypt. And then God, he poured out 10 powerful plagues upon the people of Egypt, making Pharaoh say, go. God saved his people from slavery, uses overwhelming power to save the people of Israel. All throughout the scriptures, God has powerfully saved his people from enemies and danger. But all of those Old Testament acts of salvation and deliverance were but types and shadows of the true and final reality saving power that was to come in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God powerfully saves his people from the fiercest enemies of sin and death. And so in this message of Jesus Christ, we see the culmination of God's power to save sinners. He rescues his people from the most certain danger of hell, eternal judgment for sin. The saving, delivering power of the gospel is made known. You see there in everyone. You see the word in everyone who believes. In John's gospel and in Paul's letters, uh, in his letters to the Roman, faith and uh, belief are really kind of interchangeable terms. Uh, so often people speak today of faith as something that's kind of very amorphous. Oh, I, I have faith. I, I believe. Okay. Well, faith in what? Faith uh, is specific in the scriptures. Um, faith actually has an object. Faith, believing, is trusting in and depending upon Jesus. Faith has a locus. Its love is in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. So remember, the gospel is a message about a person. It's about Jesus. We believe in him. We believe that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised from the grave for our justification in accordance with the scriptures. Faith is appropriating Jesus and all of his work for us. So we trust in Jesus. We depend upon Jesus. Jesus gladly receives, do you see this in the text? Faith from people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Uh, this is why everyone, this is why we as Christians are compelled to send the gospel all over the world. For some of the nations that we prayed for this morning, to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's saving power in the gospel is applied to all kinds of people, regardless of ethnicity or socioeconomic status or age or sex or the list of sins that we've all had in our lives. The gospel is for everyone who would believe. Friend, the gospel is for you if you would believe. This saving power of Jesus is for you if you would believe upon him. 
Think about it. After leveling the earth at the foot of the cross by saying that God's saving power is promised to everyone who believe, Paul then adds this interesting phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I think that many have made understanding this phrase more complex than it actually is. Uh, First, it's important to remember that Paul has just stressed uh, that everyone who is saved is saved in exactly the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, this phrase, I think, ought not to be thought of kind of a line as people get in, right? Jews first, and then Greeks get in behind, or Gentiles get in behind, which is really kind of everybody else. No, we ought not think of uh, this phrase in this way. We ought to think of this in connection with the progress of the history of redemption that we've seen really unfold throughout the scriptures, right? The, the Jewish people were the ones who first heard the word of promise from God concerning the Messiah. Uh, we see that very clearly in the Old Testament. But not only that, but God promised that he would raise up his Messiah among the Jewish people. So the Jewish people kind of became the womb for birthing God's salvation promises to the world. Not only that, but God promised uh, that people would come to him who were outside of the Jewish peoples. In a very real way, God's saving power in Jesus Christ, yes, came to the Jews first. John's gospel opens noting that Jesus came to his own, but sadly that his own did not receive him. Not only that, but the spread of the gospel begins really in largely Jewish territory and then moves out from there, right? The spirit is powerfully poured out in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And then God's saving power is expressed as more than 3,000 people believe that message about Jesus. And then the gospel, right, progresses out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria the ends of the earth. So while the message historically kind of comes to the Jews first, uh, it is then spread to the Gentiles, to everyone. We should desire to preach the gospel to all kinds of people. We should be uh, indiscriminate, so to speak, with our proclamation of the gospel. We should desire to see people saved from every tongue and tribe and nation. What, What should we do if somebody who we're sharing the gospel with, actually responds. says, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to lay hold of him in faith. We should walk with them, encourage them. It's our responsibility to encourage them to keep believing, to keep following the commands of Jesus and trusting him, teaching them what it means to be a disciple. I love it that you're, um, those who serve with the kids have discipler on their, their back. That's instructive in teaching. This is what we're to do. We, to help bring them along as being a student and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when people express faith in Jesus, we want to make them a disciple, to teach them how to follow Jesus. And if they've truly given themselves to Christ, we should encourage them to be baptized. Take upon themselves that sign that says Jesus died for me and was raised for me. I believe this. Now, those who believe the message about Jesus uh, should make their declaration, their faith in Jesus in that way, and unite with his people, remembering that God powerfully saves sinners. And don't you love it that Often when baptisms take place, the pastor is the one who's pulling that person up from that watery grave, showing us, reminding us that it's God's power that raises us from the dead. Well, having considered Paul's first assertion that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, let's turn now and consider the second reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. As we do, read uh, read Romans one seventeen with me now. For in it... The gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, uh, we not only find the second reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel, but we also find the very reason that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Because in it, in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, there, there are several ways we can actually think about this phrase, the righteousness of God. First, we could think about it as kind of an attribute of God. It's part of God's character to be righteous and just. So, for example, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 6, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. Right? God, because he is righteous, that's his character, cannot leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. So, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment due to our sins. This seems to be Paul's point, actually. A couple chapters later, in Romans 3, verse 25, where we read Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So, in the punishment of his own dear son, God's righteous character was revealed. There's another way that we can think about this phrase, the righteousness of God. We can think about the revealing of God's righteousness as being something that God does. Um, the scriptures sometimes describe God's righteousness as kind of being brought near. Uh, so in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, we read, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In the gospel, the righteousness of God has drawn near in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has performed righteous deeds. So there's another way to think about the righteousness of God in respect to this phrase. We can also biblically think about the righteousness of God as being revealed in the sense that it is something that God has applied. Uh, this phrase, the righteousness of God, uh, can also be properly translated the righteousness from God. So in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul admits that his own righteousness will not save him. That's something we should all do. Paul admits that his own righteousness will not save him. But that the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ will. God has applied his own righteousness to Paul's account. Paul has received the righteousness of Christ because he has placed his faith in Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ's righteousness was imputed, credited, reckoned, or applied to Paul's account. So when we place our faith in Jesus... We receive all of his righteousness, just as he received all of our sin and the punishment due to it on the cross. So let's say a couple gets married. Uh, the husband-to-be, the, the, the groom-to-be, uh, has some measure of wealth in his bank account, and his dear bride has uh, some college debt. Well, when they're united together, uh, he gets all of her college debt, and she gets all of his probably very minimal wealth, right? Something like that happens in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, some time ago, I was trying to explain this doctrine of imputation, crediting uh, Christ's righteousness to our account to my kids at the dinner table. And I said to one of them, let's say, let's say I put $100 in Christopher's bank account. That was before it was more than like two gallons of two, two tanks of gas from a minivan. But uh, let's say I put $100 in Christopher's bank account and the eyes go, I want $100, right? That's what happens. God credits Christ's righteousness to us and to our account. He's imputing Jesus' righteous works to us. And here's why this righteousness of God is important. It is not enough for Jesus to simply have died for our sins. It is not enough for our debts to be cleared. We have to be made righteous in God's sight. Because our lives are filled with such unrighteousness. Uh, we need the righteousness of God and this righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, who's at the very center of the gospel. This is the reason that all of Christ's earthly life and ministry is so important, Christian. 
We needed Jesus 30 plus years of life lived for us. His righteous life lived for us on our account to be our savior. Jesus could not have just shown up on earth to die, be raised and ascend back into heaven. No, he had to live for us if he was going to die for us and be raised for us. if He was going to rule over us for our good and God's glory. All of Jesus uh, law keeping, obeying God, performing righteous deeds were necessary for our salvation. We need the whole of Jesus' obedience, his righteousness credited to our account. We need Jesus' righteousness to be saved. That's why uh, when the great theologian J. Gresham Machen was on his deathbed, he sent the following telegram uh, to his friend John Murray. He wrote, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. If you don't know what a telegram is, ask Joey uh, after the service. But it's true. In referring to the active obedience of Christ, Machen was referring to all of Christ's law-keeping and obedience to the Father. And we know from Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to carry through to completion all that God required of his people. And so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed because, because we see that Jesus has been perfectly righteous for us and for our salvation. And herein lies the power of the gospel, that Jesus Christ's righteousness is revealed and reckoned, credited to our account. We can view the revealing of God's righteousness as the revealing of his character, as his activity, or as something that he applies to those who believe. Those three perspectives, I think, are present in our text, but it's really the last one that I think Paul especially has in view, given the trajectory of the text. It seems as though the righteousness of God applied to our account by faith is what Paul wants us to see most clearly because of the phrase that follows. You see there? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as verse 17 says. And what this indicates is how we come to possess the righteousness that God has revealed in the gospel. Paul is telling us that Christ's righteousness is credited to our account by faith from beginning to end. In other words, there's no other way to be counted as righteous. So friend, if you're, you're counting on your good works to make you righteous before God's sight, Paul is telling you, That's impossible. Can't do it. It's got to be Jesus' work, not yours. There's no other way except through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We need his righteousness. Paul is saying that God applies the righteousness of Christ that he's revealed in the gospel as we place our faith in Jesus. A little later in Romans, Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's faith, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Abram, Abraham believed God's message, his word of promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not justified, counted as righteous in God's sight, because he was circumcised or for any particular thing that he did. He was justified and counted as righteous in God's sight because he believed God. This good news tells us how God makes us righteous in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish, by faith. The righteousness of God is credited to our account. It's received by faith alone. Paul quotes scripture, you see there, to stress that point. You see that phrase, as it is written, in verse 17. Uh, When that phrase comes up here and in other places in the New Testament, what, what the writer is doing, what Paul and other writers are doing, they're returning to the Old Testament to show us that what they've just said is consistent with what they're saying right now. So here Paul is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 which says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, In its original context, this is part of uh, the Lord's response to Habakkuk's complaint. 
Now, what Paul's quotation of the text shows us is that the true people of God begin in faith, trusting in God, in his righteousness, and continue on in faith. So we now trust in Jesus' righteousness from beginning to end, come what may, through the whole course of our lives. The, the righteousness of God is revealed to us in the gospel. It's credited to our account by faith. And having been made righteous in God's sight, we live out of that new identity in faith. Still, we ought not think that it is our faith that saves us. Faith is merely the instrument that God uses to justify his people. Let me say this again. This is incredibly important. We ought not think that it is our faith that saves us. Faith is merely the instrument that God uses to justify his people. Uh, As A.W. Pink has so beautifully said, we are justified by faith, not because of what faith is, but because of what faith receives. Faith receives the righteousness of Christ that's been revealed in the gospel. Faith says, Jesus lived and died and rose again for me. Faith says, I have done nothing. Jesus has done it all. Faith says, nothing in my hand I bring. No, simply to the cross I claim. As a wise Christian once said, we are not saved on the basis of the strength of our faith. We are saved on the basis of the strength of our Savior. So friend, if you've come here today thinking that your faith is weak, that's fine. Jesus receives even the weakest of faith. Faith rests on him alone, and he loves to receive whatever feeble faith you may have in him. Give it to him. Give everything that you can to him. Believe as much as you can this day and pray for stronger faith in the strongest Savior. He will save you, not your faith and not the strength of it. He is your Savior. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you into this faith. I want to invite you to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's revealed in this gospel. Before Martin Luther really came to understand these verses, he tried to earn his salvation by performing his own righteous works. That's kind of our natural bent, as it were. My friend, do you realize that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself? The scriptures tell us that all of our righteous deeds, the Bible says that they're like filthy rags in God's sight. And I'm pretty confident that you can't outdo Martin Luther or even the apostle Paul for that matter. Both men were zealous in their pursuit of righteousness and both by God's grace came to see that the solution was not found within them. Friend, the solution is not found within you. It's found outside of you in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against God, like our first parents, like Adam and Eve. We've rebelled against the one who made us. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. We've sinned against the infinitely righteous God. And because of our sin, we deserve to be punished for them forever in hell. The Bible reveals at least two things clearly. The Bible reveals that we are unrighteous. And it also reveals the good news, good news in Jesus is that he's perfectly, he's perfectly righteous. Through Jesus, we can be saved. It was through all of his perfect law-keeping, his perfect righteous deeds, his honoring the Father, obeying God's commands all the way to his death, even his death on the cross for sinners like you and me. Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. He declared him to be Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Friend, Jesus' resurrection is the proof that you need to know that he can save you. 
Right? He's the one who's overcome the consequences of sin and death. He's proven to you. He is the savior of the world. And now he invites you to believe in him, to trust in him, and in him alone. Everything you need for salvation has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And I want to urge you to turn away from your unrighteousness and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what that means, what it means to trust in him, follow him. Talk with one of the elders here. Talk with Chris, Joey, one of the other elders. Uh, don't wait till Nathan gets back. Talk to them today. Uh, talk to me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, about what it means to trust in and follow Jesus. There's nothing more important you can think about than receiving Jesus by faith today. And, and children, young people, young adults, I want to say a word to you in particular. Do you recognize there's a difference between outward obedience and genuine faith? Now, you have been blessed to have been brought to church by parents who love you and I trust, uh, love the gospel. And I'm guessing that they probably have rules in your home. And that's a good thing. Rules in your home that encourage obedience to God and obedience to them. But even if you obey those rules perfectly, which let's be honest, you can't and you won't. Your works are like filthy rags in God's sight. Your works cannot save you, but Jesus can. Put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation. Maybe you should put your parents on the spot this afternoon. Ask them why Jesus is their only hope before the holy God today. Paul, we see here, he's eager to preach the gospel because it's the saving power of God. And it's the place where the righteousness of God is revealed. But here's the question I want us to turn and think about now. Are we, are we with Paul? Are we ashamed to proclaim the name of Christ or are we eager? Uh, this is the third and final point that I want us to think about this morning. Are we ashamed or are we eager? I want us to think through some application and do some self-reflection. Notice in verse 15, Paul mentioned his eagerness to preach the gospel. And then in verse 16, Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel. 